Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Face Connecticut. I'm Morgan Cunningham on WTIC News Talk 1080 96.5 TIC and Light 100.5 WRCH. We're going to have a conversation this morning with Colin Provost. He is the president of the Aspie Local 391 Union. He's going to be speaking with us this morning about various issues facing state correctional officers and other correctional staffers as well. Colin, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. We really appreciate your time. Could you start off by giving us a general summary, if you would, of recent incidents here in Connecticut within our state prisons, some of which have involved correctional officers or staffers being injured? Approximately uh, four weeks ago or so, uh, within the last month, we've had uh, four uh, major assaults. Um, the first one that uh, brought attention to me, uh, had a press conference about, was in my local, um, out of my facility, McDougal Walker. Uh, a CO was um, assaulted in inside a unit, uh, was taken out on a stretcher and uh, taken to the uh, hospital by ambulance. Uh, it was a very um, traumatic incident for all the staff that were involved. Um, I was on the phone with uh, members uh, that were, you know, uh, helping the situation at the time, uh, other stewards. Uh, so I was uh, close to that situation. The other ones um, that happened thereafter, um, one was at Garner, uh, which was very serious. Uh, a weapon was used. Um, the uh, problem um, that occurred there, uh, an inmate attacked two officers and was able to use the weapon to uh, stab one and actually stab the other in the neck. Um, then we had uh, another incident almost on the heels of that at Cheshire, um, where uh, an uh, inmate attacked a CO where he was on a single post, um, where he was doing uh, feeding in the unit, um, totally unprovoked attack on an officer. Um, and then we had a um, another uh, melee sort of situation between some gang members at uh, Corrigan, uh, which turned into a, a large uh, a, you know, a, a large fight between uh, two rival gangs. When I think about all of these incidents, how most of them, many of them have happened now within just a few weeks of one another and also one at Manson Youth earlier this week. Is this some kind of a coordinated attack? Why now? Why just the last few weeks? Oh, I, I don't 
know of any information. I have not received uh, any information from our internal investigation unit, our security division, um, or any of the administration that shows that this was uh, some sort of a unified plan by inmates uh, to attack staff. Um, you know, we, we've had issues, you know, like this in the past um, where we have assaults, but it's just never had this many, like, on the heels of each other um, coming. And uh, we, we haven't uh, seen this level, these type of levels of increased assaults on staff or other inmates um, in quite some time. What happened in 2021? We have a new law that was passed. Could you explain how things looked before 2021 and how they've looked now the last two years since then? Prior to the change in the law, um, we had ability to manage uh, inmate population that was a little bit more uh, violent or harder to manage. Um, we were very good at, as far as the administration is concerned, uh, documenting all of uh, the reasons why somebody would have to be put in, in a, uh, an AS situation or what we refer to as administrative segregation. Um, that had a couple of different phases to it. Um, the inmates had an opportunity to progress through it um, and re, you know be removed from administrative segregation. Or if they continued to be violent, they could regress and go back. Um, since the law change, we have a lot of restrictions upon um, what we can do as far as utilizing administrative segregation. I understand that the bill was, uh, its intent was to stop solitary as the title was, um, but there's really no um, Shawshank Redemption type of solitary confinement here in Connecticut. Um, what we had was uh, units that were designed in order to maintain separation between inmates um, to make sure that they could not hurt each other. Um, and when they became violent, it gave us an opportunity to manage them safely. And I think the big thing that, you know, we were stressing in all of this is that safety was the utmost importance for not just staff, but the inmates. We're professionals and we do our job in a professional way. And our intent is to make sure that the staff members go home safe and the inmates stay safe inside the institution. So within the statute, there was limitations put on how long an individual could be put in an administrative segregation unit. Um, and then once they completed that time of 15 days, uh, they knew that they couldn't go back to administrative segregation for a period of time so that it kind of gave them open uh, ability to continue to be violent without any kind of um, sanctions being placed back on them. Um, a couple other things that happened at the same time within that was um, uh, we had constraints put on the sanctions that could be put on inmates, not only with their out-of-cell time, but also with uh, phone communication um, and with uh, commissary limitations where we would have uh, the ability to give them sanctions uh, on uh, contact visits, uh, uh, limiting their uh, their uh, personal mail that they would get, USPS mail, um, and uh, sanctions that would reduce the amount of out-of-cell time they had. Those tools have been taken away from us with this statute. Are there other tools that you guys can use, or were these the best methods? These were the known methods. These were the known methods that we used. Um, there's not been um, any uh, really great ideas that have been brought forward 
to utilize as sanctions um, for the inmate population now um, to manage them. And when we have violent inmates, uh, and I say violent inmates, ones that are, you know, attempting to kill us or kill each other, um, it's it's sad to know that we are limited to only putting them in administrative segregation for a short period of time. And then once they come back out, they can't go back in. Um, and and that's a that's a danger to the other inmates as well as it uh, it is to the staff. Is there any specific data, any numbers that you guys have been following that compare year to year over the last say five to ten years of incidents involving attacks on correctional officers or other inmates? Yeah, so we pulled the uh, statistics from what the DOC put out publicly on uh, Connecticut.gov. We're still looking into whether or not. Um, all these statistics are valid, quote unquote. Uh, we believe they're they're really close um, to the numbers. Um, we, we we are unsure of how they they draw these statistics because in some situations we have seen that uh, there might have been some uh, more um, uh, disciplinary reports which uh, we we use to provide sanctions on the inmates um, that may not have been reported um, or in in any time that you try to draw statistics, um, you know, there's there's a little bit of a, a opportunity for the, the statistics to not be perfect. Um, but what we have for statistics from the state um, shows uh, in June of 2019, when we had an inmate population of around 13,000 inmates, uh, we had staff assaults of about 126. Um, in June of 23, uh, as a direct comparison, uh, we had 10,000 inmates so it was about 3,000 less, and staff assaults were up to 196. So we reduced the inmate population by 3,000, yet we increased the amount of staff assaults by 70. Um, I think that's a pretty staggering number to show. Um, we can show from 2019 to 2020, it actually went down the staff assaults from 126 to 100, and then it's progressively gone up from there. Uh, 21 was 168. 22, we had 184, and then 23, we're looking at 196. Um, so when we we look at those numbers, it's quite uh, staggering to, to, to show. And um, we had warned um, the administration, um, our legislators, that this bill um, was going to be dangerous to the safety of officers because we're now uh, having inmates out of cell time increased. So when we talk about the increase of out-of-cell time, um, just to give the general public an idea, um, a lot of our institutions have dorms, so there's no cells. Um, so the, the out-of-cell time didn't really affect those facilities. However, in our higher level, our more violent uh, inmates, uh, the higher level institutions have cells. And when we increase their out-of-cell time under a, a mandatory statute, uh, we're increasing the amount of violent offenders that are out in a day room at the same time um, for an extended period of time. So the staff members that are on the floor are now um, dealing with a violent uh, population for a longer period of time, which just expands the amount of opportunity a violent offender may have. I'd like to talk a little bit about staffing, but first, just to help the general public understand, what does staffing look like in one of Connecticut's prisons? And I'm talking about shifts, you know, are there more on days, are there fewer on nights? 
Is there a shortage, so forth and so on? Could you help walk us through what staffing looks like as of 2023 in a Connecticut prison? Over the last several years, we've been talking about trying to increase the staffing levels um, statewide. And when we're talking about increasing the staffing levels statewide, we were talking about the number of total corrections officers or correctional professionals, because we do have represented, we represent more than just correction officers. We also represent the industries officers, commissary officers, uh, kitchen officers, maintenance officers, all of which are in hazardous duty within the prisons. Um, but we've been asking for an increase in that staffing level to uh, help the, the agency in the state reduce the amount of overtime. And uh, they, they did come through with bringing a lot more staff in through recruitment. Um, we are having uh, a serious problem with retention and uh, re- recruiting the, the right candidates. But when we're walking the public through uh, what it looks like um, in a prison, and you're referring to all three shifts, we do have a day shift, a second shift, and a third shift. It is a 24-hour operation that runs seven days a week. 365 days a year. When we're talking about a Monday through Friday situation, day shift, uh, we have a lot of administrators in the facility and we have a lot more staff during day shift on Monday through Friday. A lot of them with administrative type of duties or our counselors that we represent within the MP4 bargaining unit um, also have um, other duties to handle with inmates as far as their release packages or um, the money that's coming in or setting up their visiting schedule, that kind of thing. So they're not actual um, on-the-floor corrections officers handling the safety and security of the institution. So when we refer to off-shifts, weekends, and off-shifts, the staffing levels are um, around the same as they were prior to the change in the law. When we were talking about this statute, we knew that the commissioner was supportive of the fact that it was important for our safety, and he testified before the legislators say that he would need I can't quote it exactly, but he did say we need a lot more posts or staff members on duty um, in the units in our level four institutions to cover for this additional out of cell time. Um, so when we were looking at those numbers, we believed that the the idea of having additional staff members um, on the floor because we have additional rec time or out of cell time for inmates, it was going to be a strategic move to make sure we had additional staff. And to help the general public, I usually use an analogy that has to do with the police department. And when we talk about a police department that breaks up their their town or their city into precincts and they see a a larger number of uh, activity going on or, or violence in a certain neighborhood, they'll increase the police presence in that area immediately. Um, Usually they'll start uh, adding more police officers or more uh, police presence through uh, either community policing or police cars, and they add the overtime. They add the additional shifts to put it on. In corrections, we didn't do that. Um, We did add a couple of extra posts, and I I did thank uh, our administration for giving us the, the few that they did, but we did put in requests for many, many more. We think that the the rise in the amount of out of cell time um, would automatically say that you need this additional uh, staff on the floor. And when I go back to that analogy of police officers, we have to remember that every one of our units are violent criminals. We, we're not dealing with a general public situation where there might be a rising crime in a certain area. These are already convicted criminals. So um, we have to ma- maintain some sort of um, observation um, and presence in these areas 
to maintain that criminal activity doesn't exist within the unit. Colin Provost is my guest this morning on Face Connecticut. I'm Morgan Cunningham, and Colin is the president of the Aspie Local 391 Union. We're talking about correctional officers and staffers and the challenges that they're currently facing after a number of attacks just in the last few weeks that have been lobbied against them. And my next question about staffing, over the last few years, we heard about several prisons in Connecticut that shut down, and the staffers that worked there had the opportunity to go to another facility within the state prison system. Did that help at all in the staffing issues that other prisons were facing in Connecticut? So it did help. And like I said, you know, the recruitment uh, through the state, they did hear our call and bring in uh, a lot more recruits. We ran more academies. Um, and then the closing of prisons and, and the uh, transfer of that staff from one building to another did assist in, in, those, in those needs. Um, the uh, silver tsunami, as the state was quoting it, um, that was coming um, last year, um, didn't actually happen, is, is what the headline said. But in the corrections, we saw a lot of people actually leave through attrition. Um, they, they took their retirement and they left before that, that end time. But it was actually uh, kind of the, the voids were filled by those closings of prisons and the shifting of staff. So we did see that assist in that area. Um, however, when we closed prisons, um, we did take away a couple of uh, very important opportunities. Uh, one, uh, when we closed uh, northern facilities specifically, um, we, we lost the ability to uh, separate inmates and keep them safe from each other. And one of the good things that we had at northern when it was open uh, was that we were able to isolate inmates during COVID. And it was really important to keep them isolated um, and be able to use the uh, negative pressure uh, cells that we had there to keep the COVID virus from spreading any further. Um, but that also helped us for many years to keep inmates isolated from each other in certain situations where they were violent against each other or violent against another gang member or even violent against staff. Um, so we lost that opportunity when we closed Northern. Um, when uh, Willard closed recently, uh, it was a level two institution. Um, there wasn't as much staff there being a level two institution um, for the general public speaking. We had a lot of um, inmates that were doing lesser time, uh, probably for more nonviolent crimes or nonviolent individuals. And they were living in a dormitory style situation um, at the Willard building where um, you need less staff per inmate in, in, in a day room or in, in a unit, so to speak. Um, so we didn't get as much of a, of a, a benefit of the staff moving around because there wasn't as much staff um, when we closed the Willard building, but we did lose the opportunity to have another level two facility um, dormitory style space for um, inmates to be able to progress from um, wherever they were to be able to now transition um, to being back in the community. Um, that facility would have had opportunities um, for what we refer to in some of these programming that I know the intent of the Stop Solitary was trying to do and find programming for inmates um, through vocational programs to help them transi transition back to the community and reduce recidivism. Now, these buildings, once they're closed, like you mentioned, Northern, for instance, once they're closed, they're closed. You can't go back and reuse that space, correct? Well, that, that would be a technical term for somebody who actually builds these buildings and closes them and opens them. I do know that the administration had said something to the effect of that they were going to put in 
to try and have those buildings uh, that are now no longer used for housing inmates um, to get the money to have them leveled or raised and uh, that they would probably leave one facility. um, And it sounds like right now they're talking about the Willard building as an emergency uh, situation for housing inmates. If there was an emergency at another facility that had to close down a a section of of a prison somewhere and be able to house the inmates there. However, it is a level two facility, so you wouldn't be able to put any level inmate there. So there'd be a lot of movement when you're talking about having an opportunity as a level two facility. From from my eyes, I, I'm not an administrator. I don't run a prison system. Uh, I'm a union president, but from my perspective, that would be my opinion. Colin, one last thing that I wanted to bring up in our last few moments here is what happens next, because I'm looking at two statements Both very recent, Governor Lamont quoted on August 25th saying, any attack on a correction officer is unacceptable and must be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And skipping a little further in the quote says, Commissioner Angel Kiros and the leadership at the DOC will continue working with union representatives to develop policies to combat any such assault on a correction officer. And the DOC on August 25th, just a few days later, said that the agency is also working to hire an independent criminal justice consultant for the purposes of suggesting possible changes and also says that they're working with union leadership. What does all of that mean? And from your perspective, how is it working if they're having these conversations with you about making adjustments in the prisons? While I applaud them bringing in a third party, um, everything that happens in the DOC seems to be reactive. The union's been trying to be proactive for years trying to combat some of these issues that we knew would be safety issues. Um, we, we were met with resistance uh, of budgetary constraints, and you always give us the what-ifs. I sit here now and I say, I don't have to give you the what-ifs. I have the t- I told you so. So um, we expect it to be reactive. Um, there has been no reaction. The reaction was these statements and emails. Um, we don't have time to wait six months um, to find out whether or not what we're doing is right, or if there's a new great concept. Something needs to be done now. Something needs to be done yesterday, three weeks ago, right after the first major assault where we have an officer go out in an ambulance. We need to increase the the safety of the individuals that are working behind those walls. And the reaction was statements in the press, email. Um, We did have uh, some conversations, um, but we don't have anything concrete to bring back to our officers and say, this is what you're getting to increase your safety. Um, and that's a difficult message for a union representative to, to bring back to his members when we're out here fighting every day, trying to make sure that they are safe. And when we come back to them and say, yep, um, here's an email, that's not very concrete. So um, I think one of the things that you know, we would say uh, on top of that is, you know, we've been calling our legislators for years. Uh, my members know who their legislators are. They know how to find them. They know how to call them. They know how to give them messages. Um, and they've, been, they've been beating this drum pretty loud for a while, saying that something needs to be done to protect our safety. We understand that we work in a hazardous duty environment, that there is some um, adverse conditions that we're going to work in. We understand that, but that doesn't mean that we go to work to get killed or that we have the right to go to work and know that somebody uh, that we're sitting there trying to protect is planning to, to, to murder us. Um, And I think those are the things that need to be driven forward here is that there should be some sort of response um, and action uh, from from the agency, um, from the legislators, from the executive branch um, that shows an action um, to help 
to curb the the assaults that are happening in the prison system. Um, and, and I think that that may look like um, some sort of amendment to uh, the statute that allows us to manage that small population that is very hard to manage. It's extremely violent. And it may look like something that says it, maybe it's time to increase the staff levels that we have um, on the floor um, in these units right away and see if it curbs the violence. Um, just as a reaction. I know that's a reactionary department and we were expecting to see some kind of reaction and I, I haven't seen it to the level that I think uh, would tell my officers that they care about their safety. Colin, I really appreciate all of your time this morning on Face Connecticut. I'd love to talk with you again down the line. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, no, I just want to say thank you to all my brothers and sisters who put up the good fight on the other side of the wall, maintaining the safety and security of the state of Connecticut and making sure that our families and our communities are staying safe. And I appreciate every one of them every day for what they go through 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, double shifts, missing holidays, missing family gatherings. Um, they deserve a thanks. They're our heroes. Colin, I appreciate your coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.